0: Man, that guy is the Red Grin Grumbolt of pretending he knows what's going on. <laughs> oh, you agree, huh? You like that Red Grin Grumbolt reference? <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? I made him up. You really are your father's children. Think for yourselves. Don't be sheep.
1: Man, see, like, you don't even know, man. When you're gonna, it's like you're born into this world, man. And you got, like, it's like this, man, the dust and the wind, man. Or like the dang old Candle and Wind, man. It don't matter, man. It's all like the old, oldies, old, these old town. You know what I think, man? Like the dang old. I think, therefore you are, man. Well, that's what we tell ourselves, isn't it, Boomhauer? Now what the heck? I'll laugh anyway. <laughs> can't believe we're on the third episode of Naples Ultra already. I still just can't get over the feeling that only a few months ago, I was sitting, waiting, and wishing for this podcast to become a reality. And now, we're already on the third episode. And now that we're here, it's time to reveal my crazy plan about how the entire structure for this podcast will work long-term Or, at least for the foreseeable future, until this system becomes outmoded or outdated or, for whatever reason, unworkable. They say everything good comes in threes, and Naples Ultra is no exception. So, overall, for the show, we have three different types of episodes that we're going to do, and they will come in this order. The first type is a narrative analysis about some sort of overarching trend or force in society. Consider the first episode, which was a story about this changing of the guard as I framed it, with baby boomers moving into retirement and millennials taking their place on deck. So, episode one was a type one episode. A narrative episode is what I'm calling it. The next type of episode is an argument where I take a specific position on an issue and create a strong argument for it. Consider the last episode, The Paradox of Free Speech, in which I made a strong argument against hate speech and other types of censorship on freedom of expression. So, episode 2 was a type 2 argument episode. Today, we are going to get to examine the final type of Naples Ultra episode which I am calling an engagement episode. In this type of episode, we engage with the work of philosophy in order to hopefully understand it better and use its insights to help see our modern society more clearly. If you know your philosophy already, then the title of this episode will clue you in to which work of philosophy we will be engaging with today. So, This episode will be a Type 3 engagement episode, and the next one, Episode 4, we will be going back to a Type 1, and then Episode 5 will be a Type 2, Episode 6 a Type 3, and so on and so forth. But before we move into the subject matter of today's episode, I want to go back and talk a little bit about last week's episode. So, as I said before, Last week's episode was an argument episode, and arguments inherently have two sides. So I knew the second episode would be far more contentious than the first. When feedback started coming in from the second episode, it was clear that while many of you agreed with my position, many of you also did not agree. But the way this disagreement was handled was awesome. And I really want to thank you guys for it. To reiterate something I said in the first episode, it's not about agreement or disagreement. The purpose of the show is to engage in a discussion of big ideas and important issues. I believe the back and forth between two sides of an argument is very beneficial and healthy, so long as you can keep it in a certain equilibrium. That is to keep everyone focused on the ideas themselves and never trying to diminish or belittle each other as human beings. Because as soon as that happens, well, then everybody's guard comes up, we're no longer really discussing these ideas, and it just kind of devolves into a mudslinging fest between the two sides. This scenario, I'd like to avoid as much as possible. Fortunately, though... That scenario was completely avoided. And that's why I really want to thank you guys. You kept the discussion in that perfect, healthy place that I wanted. For those of you who disagreed with me, you were always genial and civil. And the conversations were always respectful, and criticisms were directed at the ideas themselves. Never at myself or anyone else. That's a pretty rare thing these days. And it's exactly the type of atmosphere that I'm trying to create with this venture. A venue where people can discuss their ideas and conversation is kept in the realm of those ideas and doesn't devolve into personal criticisms or ad hominem attacks. So, again, everybody, thank you so much. Let's continue to create this type of atmosphere so we can all grow together, rather than trying to tear each other down. So, with that being said, let me officially welcome you, one and all, to the third episode of Naples Ultra, Shadows on the Wall.
0: Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what? What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind.
1: I'm not gonna lie. I'm a pretty big fan of the Matrix. And not just the first one but the whole trilogy. In fact, most of my middle school and early high school years were spent in defense of the last two movies. Regardless, though, when The Matrix first came out, it was praised highly for its originality and thought-provoking message. But when you dig a little deeper, you realize that The Matrix wasn't such an original idea after all. In fact, the idea of the Matrix is ancient. It predates television, electricity, and even the English language. And as great a job as he does in that movie, Lawrence Fishburne is not the original Morpheus. So I'm going to offer you a third pill, the Naples Ultra pill, and introduce you to the original Morpheus. You've probably heard of him before, Lived a long time ago in an ancient Mediterranean society. Of course, I'm talking about our good friend, Plato. Granted, Plato's ideas are not explained in the exact same way as they are in the movie, but its core themes are strikingly similar. In fact, the creators of The Matrix openly admitted to drawing upon Plato's cave analogy for their movie. What is the cave analogy, you ask? Or metaphor? I just kind of use them interchangeably. Well, that is what we're going to be talking about today. It is the prehistorical matrix, if you will. This prehistorical matrix appears in what is Plato's most influential and popular work, The Republic. The Republic, like so much Plato's work is a Socratic dialogue. To explain this, let me explain a little bit about Plato himself and his relationship intermingled with these other classical philosophers. Born in 428 or 427 BC in ancient Athens, Plato was the second of the three great Greek classical philosophers. First, There came Socrates, and Socrates himself may actually have never existed, because we only know of Socrates' existence through Plato. Plato, allegedly a student of the great philosopher, spends much of his work recounting Socrates' exploits. Socrates himself never wrote anything down. So every time you read a Socratic dialogue, you have to understand that it's not Socrates' actual words. These are words Plato has put into his mouth, and sometimes he's put those words into his mouth for purpose. I feel this is very much the case in The Republic. I, for one, though, do believe that Socrates was a real philosopher who existed in Athens and taught his own branch of philosophy. The main reason I say this is because I feel that there's a very real difference between works that Plato deems as Socrates' work and Plato's original types of works. What's great about The Republic, though, is I feel it's the best blending of the Socratic style of philosophy and the Plutonic style of philosophy. After Plato came Aristotle, who was supposedly a student of Plato's. So as you can see, these three guys kind of come as a trilogy. First, there was Socrates, A New Hope, and then Plato strikes back. And then finally, you wrap up this thrilling trilogy with the return of Aristotle. In this episode specifically, though, We're not going to be talking much about Aristotle. His ideas and philosophies will be discussed in a later episode. But for now, I just wanted to kind of give you the relationship between these three great philosophers. On to the Republic itself. As stated before, it's a Socratic dialogue. And in this dialogue, Socrates is conversing with a group of Athenians and foreigners on what the root of justice is during their discussion they naturally link justice to the conception of what good is and to explain why so many people have trouble discovering this good socrates crafts a metaphor for how people live their lives forced into darkness and ignorance they are shackled in a prison cell unable to tell The difference between reality and fiction. This is the famous cave metaphor. And in order to get a better understanding of it, I'm just going to let Socrates slash Plato explain it to you. I'm going to be quoting from The Republic Book 7 at length here, so please bear with me. In Book 7, Socrates is specifically talking with a man by the name of Galcon. So, just bear in mind, this isn't written like a narrative book, but like a dialogue in between two people. So, without further ado, let's dive in to the famous cave analogy. Socrates. Imagine... Human beings living in an underground cave-like dwelling with an entrance a long way up that is open to the light and as wide as the cave itself. They have been, since their childhood, prisoners with their necks and legs fettered so that they are fixed in the same place, able only to see in front of them because their fetter prevents them from turning their heads around. Light is provided by a fire burning far above and behind them. Between the prisoners and the fire, there is an elevated road stretching on. Imagine that along this road, a low wall has been built, and a screen has been put in front of people that is provided by puppeteers. Gelcon, I am imagining it. Socrates, also imagine then that there are people alongside the wall carrying artifacts that project above it. Statues of people and other animals, made of stone, wood, and every other material. And, as you would expect, some of the carriers are talking and some are silent. Galcon, it is a strange image that you are describing, and strange prisoners. Socrates, they are like us. I mean, in the first place, do you think these prisoners have ever seen anything of themselves and one another, besides the shadows that the fires cast on the wall of the cave in front of them? Galcon. How could they, if they have to keep their heads motionless throughout their life? Socrates. What about the things carried along the wall? Isn't the same true where they are concerned? Galcon. Of course. Socrates. Socrates. And if they could engage in discussion with one another, do you think they would assume that the words they used applied to the things they see passing in front of them? Galcon, they would have to. Socrates, what if their prison also had an echo from the wall facing them? When one of the carriers passing along the wall spoke, do you think that they would believe anything other than the shadow passing in front of them was speaking? Galcon, I do not by Zeus Socrates all in all then what the prisoners would take for true reality is nothing other than the shadows of those artifacts Galcon that's entirely inevitable so let's take a quick second here to recap basically Socrates is painting a picture of this prison in which everybody is shackled with their heads facing forward and their legs together they can't move their heads they can't look from side to side and behind them there's a fire with some puppeteers who are puppeteering various artifacts in front of them using the fire to cast shadows on the walls in front of the prisoners because of their bondage and their inability to see around them the prisoners thus have no choice but to conclude that these shadows are in fact real. Because if you've never experienced reality, how can you then tell the difference between reality and fiction? Moving on. Socrates. Consider, then, what being released from their bonds and cured from their foolishness would naturally look like if something like this should happen to them. When one was freed and suddenly compelled to stand up, turn his neck, walk up and look out towards the light, would he be pained by doing all these things and be unable to see the things whose shadows he had seen before because of the flashing lights? What do you think he would say if we told him that what he had seen before was silly nonsense? But now, because he is a bit closer to what is and turn towards things that are more he sees correctly? And, in particular, if we pointed to each of these things passing by and compelled him to answer what each of them is, don't you think he would be puzzled and believe that the things he saw earlier were more truly real than the ones he was being shown now? So, basically here, What Socrates is saying is that if we were to unshackle these prisoners and show them reality, they would believe that the fiction they saw earlier was actually the true reality and the reality that they were being shown was the fiction. Moving on, Socrates. And if he were compelled to look at the light itself, wouldn't his eyes be pained? And wouldn't he turn around and flee towards the things he is able to see and believe that they are really clearer than the ones being shown to him now? Galcon, he would. Socrates, and if someone dragged him by force away from there, along the rough, steep, upward path, and did not let him go until he had dragged him into the sun, wouldn't he be pained and angry at being treated this way? And when he came into the light, wouldn't he have his eyes filled with sunlight and be able to see a single one of the things now, which is truly real? Galcon No, he would not be able to. At least, right away. Socrates. He would need time to get adjusted, I suppose. And if he were going to see things in the world above, at first he would see the shadows most easily and then images of men, and other things in the water, then the things themselves. From these, it would be easier for him to go on to look at the things in the sky, and the sky itself at night, gazing at the light in the stars and moon, than during the day, and staring up at the sun and the light of the sun. Gelkin, of course. Socrates, finally, I suppose he would be able to see the sun, not reflections of it in water or some alien place, but the sun just by itself in its own place, and be able to at last look at it and see what it is truly like. Gelkin, he would have to. Socrates, after that, he would already be able to conclude that it provides the seasons and the years. It governs everything in the visible world and is in some way the cause of all things that he and his fellows used to see. Galcon that would certainly be the next step. Socrates, what about when he reminds himself of his first dwelling place? What passed for wisdom there and his fellow prisoners? Don't you think he would consider himself happy for the change and pity the other prisoners galcon certainly socrates and if there had been honors praises or prizes among them for the one who was the sharpest at identifying the shadows as they passed by and was best able to remember which came earlier which later and which simultaneously and who was thus best able to prophesy the future. Do you think that our man would desire these rewards or envy those among the prisoners who had been honored or held their power? Or do you think he would feel with Homer that he would much prefer to work the earth as a serf for another man, a man without possessions of his own, and go through any sufferings, rather than share in their beliefs and live as they do. Galcon, yes, I think he would rather suffer anything than live like that. Are you guys starting to see where the Matrix came from yet? You know, it still blows me away that this was written 2,400 years ago. Moving on, Socrates, consider this too then. If this man went back down into the cave and sat down in his same seat, wouldn't his eyes be filled with darkness coming suddenly out of the sun like that? Galcon. Certainly. Socrates. Now, if he had to compete once again with the perpetual prisoners and recognizing the shadows while his sight was still dim before his eyes had recovered, and if the time for readjustment was not short, wouldn't he provoke ridicule? Wouldn't it be said of him that he had returned from his upward journey with his eyes ruined? And that it was not worth while to even try to travel upwards? And as for anyone who tried to free the prisoners and lead them upward, if they could somehow get their hands on him, wouldn't they try and kill him? Galcon They certainly would. Socrates. This image, my dear Galkin, must be fitted together as a whole with what we said before. The realm revealed through sight should be likened to the prison dwelling and the light of the fire inside it to the sun's power. And if you think of the upward journey and the seeing of things above as the upward journey of the soul to the intelligible realm, you wouldn't mistake my intention, since it is what you wanted to hear about. Only the God knows whether it is true, but this is how these phenomena seem to me. In the knowable realm, the last thing to be seen is the form of the good, and it is seen only with toil and trouble. Once one has seen it, however, one must infer that it is the cause of all that is correct and beautiful in anything, that in the visible realm it produces both light and its source, and that in the intelligible realm it controls and provides truth and understanding, and that anyone who is to act sensible in private or in public must see it. Galkin. I agree. This is the perfect place to stop with Plato's Republic. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you how the story ends. But before we do that, let me just break everything down that we've just heard. So, Socrates starts by explaining the metaphor of the cave. He starts by talking about the prisoners who are shackled and they can't move and they're watching these shadows move across in front of them. And because they've been in this cave shackled and imprisoned all their lives, they have no idea what reality actually looks like. So they think their little outcove is the real world. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Socrates slash Plato, I'm just going to keep calling him Socrates, even though we know it's written by Plato. Anyway, Socrates says that even if we were to unshackle these prisoners and they were to walk up and stare out into the light, it would be an extremely uncomfortable experience for them. So they would rather choose the option of staying in the cave rather than going out into the light, if given the choice. So, if we're going to bring these people out of their prison into reality, we have to do it forcibly. We literally have to go in there and drag them out. And that's not an experience they're going to enjoy very much. They're going to be angry, they're going to be resentful, and they're going to be confused. And he's not going to adjust to reality overnight. It's going to take him some time. Because he's been living in darkness for so long, he has to take this adjustment in steps. At first, he's only going to be able to see shadows, and then dark figures. Then he'll be comfortable with the light at nighttime, until finally, over time, his eyes have adjusted enough that he can finally look up at the sun during the day and realize that that the sun in one form or another is responsible for everything he's experienced up to this point, including the light which made the shadows on the wall. There is a line that appears in some translations of the Republic, not the one I read from though, where Socrates says, the only way to reason the sun is to be able to see the sun. And it's a shame that quote doesn't show up in this translation, because I think it's a good way of explaining what he means. But we'll come back to this in a bit. Socrates says that our prisoner, who we've forcibly dragged up out of the cave, will eventually be happy that we did what we did. When looking back on his experience in the cave, the prisoner will be thankful that even though there are toils in the world which he inhabits now that never existed in the cave, he will be happy to be free and living in reality. Rather than wishing he was back in the cave with the guys who are watching the shadows go by and getting prizes and honors for guessing the right shadows, none of that means anything to him anymore because he knows what's truth and what's fiction. It gets interesting again when Socrates says that if our prisoner were to return to the cave, all the other prisoners would belittle him. They would chastise him because he's no longer accustomed to that environment. He can no longer engage with the shadows once he knows that they are shadows. And the other prisoners, upon seeing that he's no longer able to engage with these shadows, think that he's completely ruined his life that he's just messed everything up and he's effectively become a total loony in the eyes of his former prisoners. As a result of this, the prisoners that are now in the cave completely rule out a journey upwards, even if they had the capability to do so, because they don't want their eyes to get ruined and they don't want to ruin what they perceive as reality. And it's not like our freed prisoner can tell them what they're seeing isn't reality. They would never believe him and they wouldn't have the words or the images or the cognition internally to be able to perceive what reality is even if he told them. Then Socrates ends by saying that if these prisoners could, they would kill anybody who tried to remove them and bring them up to the surface. They would be extremely hostile to any attempts to actually bring reality into their lives. The whole purpose of this metaphor is to illustrate one thing. Socrates likens the sun in this metaphor to the good. He says that the good is the creator of all these other aspects that we're talking about. The creator of justice, of fairness, of good law, and so on and so forth. But seeing and interpreting the good is extremely difficult. Almost all of us, Socrates says, are stuck in this cave watching projections of these surrounding concepts of the good, but never knowing that they are just that. Projections. In order for us... To actually build a truly just society, we need to understand the good itself. We have to allow someone to forcibly drag us out of our cave and into the light. And once we get into the light, it's going to take us some time to actually comprehend what the good is. We're not going to be able to see it right away. We're going to have to engage with these outer concepts and slowly but surely. Build up our understanding until eventually we can go out and look directly at the sun, or the good in this metaphor, and finally be able to reason it. Remember that line that I talked about earlier that didn't appear in our translation? In order to reason the sun, one must first see the sun, just replace the sun with good, and then the metaphor should become clear. In order to reason the good, we must first see the good. So, what's the whole point of this? What's the whole point of the metaphor? The end argument of the Republic is this In order to build a truly just society, we have to build a society which understands the good. In order to understand the good, we need people who are willing to drag us out of the cave and do the difficult work in order to finally be able to see the good. And reason the good. The people who have done this are the only ones who are capable of ruling over society, because they are the only ones capable of creating a truly good society. So, the ideal society is one which is ruled over by a philosopher king of sorts, or some council of wise elders that are able to understand the good. Basically, he's saying the perfect ruler would be someone like Plato. It's really great, right? That basically he writes this entire work of philosophy to argue that the only person capable of ruling society is himself. There are just so many things I love about this whole metaphor and about the Republic itself. But what it truly goes to show is just how long... People have been questioning whether or not our reality is the real reality. But the way these people had to explain the metaphor is, to me, fascinating. For us in our modern society, it's really easy to explain this concept, right? We can point to movies like The Matrix, or we can just say, oh, maybe our reality is a virtual reality. Maybe it's a computer simulation or what have you. But it's not like you could have gone up to someone in ancient Greece and say, Do you think our reality is a computer simulation? And they would just clue in like that and know what you're talking about. Because there was no computers. There was no concept of programming or anything like that. So instead, you have to use a simpler metaphor. You have to use the shadows on the wall. Now, to finish off this section of the show... I want to talk about the reason I decided to do this episode in the first place, and why I think the knowledge of Plato's Cave is an important piece of knowledge to have. One thing you'll notice when you study ancient philosophy, or any philosophy for that matter, is just how often those ideas infiltrate into and inspire popular culture. For example, most people don't know that The Matrix is based off of Plato's Cave and, as we read, is pretty much an entire rip-off of the metaphor, just in different wrapping paper. And that's not meant to bash the creators or anything, because I love the movie. But more so, my point here is to say that if you're a person who's creative, likes to tell stories, likes to think of these kind of big ideas, then you should definitely start reading philosophical works. Because they are going to give you so many great ideas. As well, when you're watching a TV show, reading a book, or going to see a movie, now, you'll be able to point to certain scenes and say, Oh, that's based off of Plato's Cave. Oh, that's based off of Kant's Categorical Imperative. Oh, that's based off of John Rawls' Veil of Ignorance. And it's just a cool way of expanding your mind and seeing where these great ideas came from. With that being said, there is a more serious reason that I wanted to talk about Plato's Cave today. More and more, I think the lines between reality and Shadows on the Wall are getting blurred. And, in fact, people are using Shadows on the Wall to obfuscate or engulf reality to the point where we're spending all our time talking about the shadows on the wall rather than talking about the light. I see this especially with news organizations. For example, they will generate entire stories off of a shadow on the wall and put it right beside or in between extremely important stories that have a dramatic effect On our lives. As well, these shadows on the wall stories are generally placed with an engaging picture or clickbait title, so they end up sucking up all the oxygen in the room. As a result, there is less conversation surrounding issues which have a far greater impact on us all, and reality is not absorbed. I've noticed these stories kind of come in three varieties. One is celebrity nonsense. Two are social media stories. And three are about how some aspect of a TV show or movie is destroying our lives. So the first kind is pretty easy to spot. Uh, the perfect example of this is, I actually put this up on my Facebook page, I was surfing the Huffington Post and it was during the Canadian election and the point in which the refugee crisis had really hit its fever pitch. It was right after that famous photo of the man with the surgical gloves was carrying the poor, deceased Syrian boy off the beaches. Anyway, so I was on the Huffington Post, and one story above was about the Syrian refugee crisis. Then, the story two spaces below it was about the canadian election it was about platform policies and platform comparisons and then wedged in between these two stories was a story that said attention in capital letters with an exclamation point kate middleton now has bangs and i was like oh it's in capital letters so uh it must be important right kind of sarcastically in my head after that though a single tear of despair rolled down my cheek and into my conveniently placed despair jar, because I like to save all my tears of despair. I keep them in a collection, right above my bed, all three of them. No, that didn't actually happen. But I was in a mood of despair, because I couldn't believe this story about Kate Middleton's bangs was wedged in between these two hugely important issues. And to me, it was a clear example of someone using a shadow on the wall, to try and distract or obfuscate you. The next are social media stories, and these will be entire pieces written around one thing one person said somewhere on Twitter. Usually what that person said is offensive or harmful or insulting or what have you. Then, of course, we'll all read the story, we'll get really mad, and then we'll start attacking this one guy who said something offensive somewhere. The way I see it in regards to these stories is that there are plenty of assholes in the world. But we really don't need to continually make national news stories out of them. I also believe that you don't solve hate with more hate. Also, if I might add, these social media stories seem to me kind of like the modern recreation of the Two Minutes Hate from 1984 You know, we all come together and all share in this experience of being mad and demonizing one person or one thing until we're all burned out and we move on about our lives, forgetting about it. 1984, by the way, another work which you can tell heavily draws on plutonic themes. So, not only are these social media stories complete wastes of time, But they only make everything worse as everybody gets whipped up into these hate-filled frenzies and as a result, there is more negative emotion in the world rather than less. It would have been far more beneficial to try and further our understanding of the good. Lastly, there are stories entirely crafted about how some TV show or movie or what have you is destroying our society. The prime example of this is how in the last season of Game of Thrones and, well, the season before that, the series took a ton of flack from media outlets for its depictions of rape and violence in the show. What you have to realize, though, is that Game of Thrones in and of itself is a shadow on the wall, meaning that it's inherently not real. It's a piece of fiction. None of what happened in the show or the books actually happened in real life because all the characters involving it don't exist. People are smart enough to tell the difference between what's TV and what's real life. That's why, despite the fact TV, video games, and movies have gotten more violent and more graphic with previous taboos of what you could or couldn't put on television disappearing, that despite all this... Violent crimes such as murder and rape are on the downswing. The point here is clear. You cannot correlate shadows on the wall to actions in real life. Doing so only distracts us from issues in real life that we should be dealing with. The shadows on the wall only ruin reality when you let them distract you from the truth. That's not to say, though, that we need to spend the entirety of our lives sitting here and contemplating what the good is. It's perfectly alright to enjoy forms of entertainment no matter on what platform they appear. Also, it's perfectly acceptable to use these shadows on the wall, these TV shows, these forms of entertainment, to help frame and explain larger issues that affect us in real life. This is something I'm a huge fan of and do on the show all the time, because I believe it's extremely beneficial to take these large, big, complicated ideas and frame them through a mode in which most people are familiar with. This not only increases the entertainment value of the podcast, but also your guys' understanding when it's all said and done. With that being said, the whole purpose of this exercise is to get you guys asking yourselves. Next time you're reading a piece of reporting, make sure to ask yourself, is this a shadow on the wall or is it dealing with reality? This is a great filter to help you discover which pieces are worth your time and which are not. And that brings us to the end of the first segment of Shadows on the Wall. I sincerely hope you guys enjoyed it, as again, I had a ton of fun making it. Now, before we go into the next segment, usually I talk about the next episode. Next week, though, there will be no new episode, as it will be the Christmas holidays, during which I'm going back to British Columbia to spend some time with my family. I'm really excited for it, as it's going to be my first time seeing all my family and friends since I've moved away from B.C. That means you'll have to wait two weeks for episode four, a narrative episode entitled Ideological Eras. I hope you guys all have a wonderful holiday break, a great Christmas, and a happy new year. And I'll see you guys all in 2016. Thank you all so much for listening, and stay tuned for our second segment. Welcome everybody to the second segment of Plus Ultra, where we discuss various questions and topics brought up by you, the listener. So, without further ado, let's jump right in. Our first question comes from a gentleman by the name of Antoine. Antoine writes, Having listened to your first episode of MPU, I feel it was just right to respond while it was fresh in my head. I have listened with great attention to your description and analysis of the recent elections in Canada, America, and the UK. I had never regarded inside politics as anything else than a topic providing good banter. However, I found your analysis of the recent changes in political preferences quite just. I came up with a couple of questions concerning this particular episode as well as future ones. Firstly, from a psychological point of view, you have a psych degree, I believe, looking at all these coups de theater recently, including the victory of the FN party in France yesterday, do you think these events have a distinct link tying them? Some kind of more profound change people have experienced. Secondly, concerning next episodes... Are you going to cover foreign politics as well? Will you, for example, talk about some of the recent events in Europe and its surroundings, as well as the media coverage of these seemingly simple situations? Being European with a tendency to look for bias in newspapers, I would gladly appreciate it if someone could say something original and sensible for a change. Last but not least, I wanted to suggest a topic of a possible future episode I'd like discussed. In our times of economic crisis, obsession with the politically correct, and the rise of extremism, etc., would an enlightened totalitarian state be better than a democratic one? A more provocative variant of this one would be, are some countries not ready for democracy? On this simple note, I sincerely wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yours, Antoine. So, there's a lot here to unpack. And I'm going to be spending more time on certain questions than others. In terms of the first question, I don't think there's been some kind of vast psychological shift in the way people are thinking. More so, people are just getting tired of the status quo. I still don't feel like we've really exited the 20th century and moved into the 21st yet. And even though we've seen a dramatic amount of change technologically... We haven't seen too many changes in the political structures of our societies. And I feel that people believe we are well overdue for some of those changes. Besides the French election, another good example of this would be the election in Spain, which just happened recently. Super interesting election. Spain has been really governed predominantly by two parties, a conservative party and a socialist party and intermixed with a smattering of smaller regional parties and smaller, more fringe parties. But the election the other day really put a huge damper on that two-party system. So, even though the conservatives actually won the election in terms of the most votes and the most seats, it was actually their worst electoral result in their history. And it's a similar story for the socialists. Even though they came in second, they took a massive battering in terms of vote count and seats. Most of these votes went to two upstart parties. The first new party is a party called Podemos, and they are very much in league with the Greek Syriza Party. So a coalition of very far-leaning left parties brought together under one banner. The second party is a right-leaning party, but not an extreme right-leaning party. They are called the Citizens Party, and they advocate for a more market-friendly solution to Spain's economic woes. Both these parties were running in an election for the first time in their history, and both came out with very respectable vote counts and seat tallies. With the Podemos party garnering 69 seats, and the Citizens' Party garnering 40 seats. The most interesting aspect of this election, though, is the fact we have no idea who the Prime Minister is going to be yet. Like we talked about in the first episode, in terms of the differences between a parliamentary system and a congressional system, although Spain's system isn't exactly parliamentary, Even if you get the most seats, if you can't get to 50%, then you can't effectively govern. And once the election results were all finally processed, left-leaning parties garnered a total of 175 seats, just one short of a majority hold. But the story doesn't end there. Even though left-leaning parties won the majority of seats in this Spanish election, despite the fact they're all on the same vague ideological spectrum, these parties have huge differences. And it's not clear if they're going to be able to overcome these differences and forge a workable coalition. So, for example, even though the Socialists and the Podemos party are both on the left side of the political spectrum, they have massive disagreements in terms of Spain's role within the European Union the amount of independence nationalist regions such as the Basques and the Catalonians in Spain should receive, and the role of immigration in society, just to name a few hotbed disagreements for these two parties. So it's going to take a little bit of time for the dust to settle here before we know who's actually going to be running the country. So the answer to the first question kind of contained the answer to the second one, which is, Yes, I want to talk about European politics as much as possible. For one, I'm a political junkie, so I love talking about politics no matter whereabouts in the world they're happening. And two, I want this show to have a more international feel. So I don't want to just be stuck here in North America or the UK. I want to have a very broad range of subject matters. So don't worry We'll be talking about politics of all sorts as time goes on. But in regards to your last question, think about the show today. Plato believed that the best form of government is an enlightened dictatorship. Essentially, a rule under a philosopher king who understands what's best for society. And objectively, I think an enlightened, benevolent dictatorship probably is the most effective form of government. Because they can get things done quicker than a democracy, and if they're doing things that benefit the people of that society, well, then a benevolent dictator could increase the welfare of that society faster than a democratic system would. The only problem here is that finding a benevolent dictator is kind of like finding a unicorn. Pretty difficult. And if you do find one, No one's going to agree with you that what you actually found is a unicorn. For me, the best example historically of a benevolent dictator would be the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Definitely a ruler I think Plato would have endorsed, Marcus Aurelius was an extremely intelligent and reflective man. He took the burdens of his office more seriously than any emperor has, and ultimately died sooner than he should, exhausted from the burdens of office. But for now, let's grant that you could find a benevolent dictator, and we all agreed that we could install them as the ruler of our society. The question is, what happens after that ruler dies? How do we choose who's next? How do we make sure the next dictator is as benevolent, caring, and contemplative as the last? As far as I can tell, There's no good way. So, until we can solve that problem, even though it's messy and chaotic, democracy remains as the most effective form of governing in our society. But in regards to your question, are some countries not ready for democracy? That is a statement I strongly disagree with. I think all countries are ready for democracies, just so long as they keep them as a pure democracy. I remember, I've got a very close conservative friend, and we were talking recently about this very issue, and we were talking about the coup that happened in Egypt a few years ago in which the military overthrew the democratically elected president of Egypt, Mohamed Morsi. My conservative friend argued that the military was right in overthrowing Morsi because Mohammed Morsi was the head of the Muslim Brotherhood Party, and Egypt would be better served with a more secular government. This is a statement I concede very quickly, but my feeling is that people need to make their own mistakes. I mean, we sure as hell got to make our own mistakes in history, and even though at the time those mistakes were tragic, we learned important lessons from them. This is what I felt would have happened in Egypt. That over time, Egyptians would have learned that living with a Muslim Brotherhood government sucks. And once they've had that experience firsthand for themselves, they can then move forward to a more secular type of democracy. To which my friend would have countered with, well, Mohammed Morsi, he just would have overwritten the constitution and made it more difficult for anyone but his own party to, get elected. to which I say, if he did that, the Egyptian people would have thrown him out on his ass so fast it would have made his head spin. Because Egyptians have very much so proven that they are not willing to take that kind of crap from their government and are willing to throw them out if necessary. Anyway, Antoine, thanks for writing in. I hope that answered your question. Our next question comes from Jake. He writes, Dear Spencer, I would like to prelude this brief response with a hearty and full endorsement of the new website, a project I believe to be a fine and bright idea. Now, on to my inquiry. When discussing in the introductory objection of the podcast, you conveyed what I interpreted as a particular disdain for ideology, unless I am mistaken. I find quite the opposite as the problem, an evacuation of ideology, with a preference for cool pragmatism and empty projects. The recent contest of the moderated leftist, the social democrats, and the moderated rightists, liberal conservatives, etc., has been the defining partisan factor since Blair and Clinton. With the election of Corbyn, you offered an adulation for the old trot. But Mr. Corbyn's election was nothing if not a new injection of much-needed ideology. Indeed, Mr. Corbyn is a man of principled convictions, but his worldview is not one of grey as opposed to black and white. One need not label the rich ideologies, however dogmatic they may be, as black or white, especially in an era when we suffer from an absence of truly ideological politicians and I don't consider the obtuse Republican Party as ideological, more a defamation of conservatism. If one is to applaud Mr. Corbyn's triumph, he must recognize that it is indeed a much-needed stimulus of ideology back into the political discourse. Best sincerely, Jake. This is a great question, Jake, and I do want to correct you on one thing, I did not want to give the impression that I have a particular disdain for ideology. I more so just dislike it when people warp it, condense it, or try and use it for nefarious purposes. Now, I have what's probably an unhealthy fascination with Jeremy Corbyn. To me, he is probably the most interesting politician right now in the world. Regardless, though, we are going to be talking a lot about him and ideology itself in our next episode, Ideological Eras. And this episode is going to be about how ideology is a relatively new development in the course of our political lives. So I really wanted to bring this up because it's a great question, it's a great email, and it dovetails perfectly into the episode which will be appearing two weeks from now. So remember, Jake, the next one is dedicated to you. Our next email comes from Liam Smith. Hello, Spencer. Another great podcast this week. I generally agree with you with what you said on free speech and found your opinions on feminism very interesting. This email may be a bit long, so don't feel like you have to read out any of it or all of it. Okay, I just won't read any of it. Uh, Our next question comes from... No, I wouldn't do that. But I will skip ahead to the questions. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm going to only answer one. You guys all write such great emails and such great questions that uh, I'm trying to find a way that I can try and get to them all but still give every single one a really good, detailed, and thought-out answer. Anyway, he says, My first question being, How do you think Western nations should deal with poverty in Africa? Many people argue that by giving aid to Africa... We are keeping people alive who should have died. This means that many families are becoming very large and thus become more dependent on aid agencies to feed their families. This means that the reliance on Western nations will only increase over time. Should Western nations continue to give so much aid to these countries? Or should we leave the countries alone to deal with themselves? Do Western countries have a responsibility to help those countries after they brutally colonized them? Great question. To answer this one, I am going to quote from the great Oscar Wilde and his essay, The Soul of Modern Man Under Socialism. Quote, it is far easier to have sympathy with suffering than sympathy with thought. People find themselves surrounded by hideous poverty, by hideous ugliness and by hideous starvation. It is inevitable that they should be strongly moved by all of this. The emotions of man are stirred more quickly than man's intelligence. Accordingly, with admirable, though misdirected intentions, they very seriously and very sentimentally set themselves to the task of remedying the evils they see. But their remedies do not cure the disease, they merely prolong it, Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. They try to solve the problem of poverty, for instance, by keeping the poor alive, or in the case of very advanced schools, by amusing the poor. This is not a solution, it is an aggravation of the difficulty. The proper aim is to try and reconstruct society on such a basis that poverty will be impossible, and the altruistic virtues have really prevented the carrying out of this aim. Just as the worst slave owners were those who were kind to their slaves, and so prevented the horror of the system by being realized from those who suffered from it, and understood by those who contemplated it. If you ever get the chance to read this essay, I highly recommend you do it. It's a fantastic essay, and it's also pretty short, so you can finish it pretty quickly. But I think my position is fairly clear, given what I just quoted. In your email, you asked, do Western countries have an obligation to help the countries whom they brutally colonized? I believe that Western countries have an obligation to leave those countries alone, in the sense that our meddling did tremendous damage to the region. So, I don't believe that us meddling even more will do much more to solve it. Those societies need to be restructured, and the people in the region need to do the restructuring. With many of these African countries, there is so much governmental corruption that you have almost no guarantee that the money you're actually giving via charity actually reaches its intended target. And even if it did, I want to quote from Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher, whom I heard about Oscar Wilde's essay from. He says, Yes, it is terrible to see a child's life ruined by an operation which costs $20. But long-term, as Oscar Wilde would have put it, if you just operate on the child, they will live a little bit better, but in the same situation which produced them. Anyway, Liam... Thanks so much for writing in. I hope that answers your question. Our last question comes in the form of a comment. And just so you know, comments underneath the show are fair game to be read in this section. Written by Kelmuth. He writes, Hello Spencer, I've watched your content for years and enjoyed it. My suggestion for possible discussion is gerrymandering and whether that occurs in Canada or not. Your view on it and a possible solution would also be appreciated. I live in the United States and wonder what the house would look like if it did not take place. I personally believe that independent redistricting should be in the Constitution, as all elected officials should have no say in the demographics of their district. Another great point by Kelmuth. For those of you who don't know, gerrymandering is a term used to describe sort of political machinations behind the scenes which favor your party or district or representative in the next election. It's a serious problem and one of the absolute kryptonites to any democratic system. It's also very hard to spot because inherently it happens behind the scenes, in that perfect realm where you exist in plausible deniability. First off, gerrymandering, does happen in Canada. In fact, there was a big kerfuffle about it fairly recently. That is because we added 30 new seats to our House of Commons. This is because the population of Canada had grown, and we needed more ridings in order to represent that larger population. At the time, the Conservatives were in power, and the provinces in which they increased the number of seats were seen as conservative bastions, particularly the province of Alberta, which gained a substantial number of new seats. All in all, though, it didn't end up helping them too much, because while you can control the system, ultimately you can't control how people vote. And with the exception of Alberta, the majority of Canadian provinces voted in favor of Justin Trudeau's Liberals. Another way in which the conservatives were deemed to be gerrymandering or playing with the system was when they eliminated the voter subsidy. So, previously in Canada, we had a law that every party who garnered above 5% or 3%, I believe, receives $2 per vote of government funding. This was to ensure that all parties still had a stable base of money with which they could fund their campaigns. The conservatives took this away, however, because they had the best system for raising donations in their party. So they believed that they could undercut the structures of opposing parties by taking away this public subsidy. And most conservatives I talked to were in favor of this, using the weak argument that, oh, I don't want my tax dollars going to parties that I don't support. But those parties only get funding when you vote for them. So, effectively, when you vote for a party, you're also giving them two dollars. So, your money wouldn't have gone to fund other parties anyway. It was a great system, and I hope the liberals bring it back. Regardless, though, this move didn't help the conservatives because, ultimately, they lost the next election, as we well know. Now, to take the conservative argument for gerrymandering in Canada, they argue that Justin Trudeau, through his electoral reforms, will make it harder for conservative governments to exist in the future. Because the way our voting system works currently, the the first-past-the-post system benefits the conservatives more than any other party. So if we move to a preferential ballot or proportional representation, it will harm the conservatives the most. I always tell my conservative friends to chillax because I don't think these electoral reforms are coming anyway, but we'll see. On to the United States. The main problem with gerrymandering here comes from a variety of different factors. First, given the fact that the House of Representatives is capped at 435 members and the seats are distributed on the population of the country, every so often, congressional districts must be redrawn. Some states will gain seats, some will lose seats. Some congresspeople will have their district obliterated entirely. And unfortunately, this system is susceptible to gerrymandering. A claim which has been thrown at the Republicans because redistricting early this decade ended up favoring rural areas over urban areas. And urban areas are predominantly Democratic, while rural areas are predominantly Republican. Of course, there are some exceptions, but that's just the general rule. What happened in a lot of urban centers is that districts got slammed together and certain congresspeople ended up representing huge populations of people, sometimes upwards of half a million. And rural districts became more numerous as a result, which, as stated before, favors Republicans. In fact, during the 2012 presidential election, like during every presidential election, congressional elections were held as well. And in these elections... The Democrats actually won a higher number of votes in the election, over 1 million votes to be precise. The Democrats only won 201 seats in comparison to the Republicans' 234 seats. Now, if that's not indicative of gerrymandering, then I don't know what is. I cannot see an argument formulated in which you can say, despite the fact the Democratic Party won a million more votes than the Republican Party. They deserve to have 33 less seats. Regardless, though, you're right, Kelmuth. Any type of congressional redistricting has to be painstakingly nonpartisan and independent. Unfortunately, like you said, politicians have way too much power over this process. How to solve it, though? Personally, I think we should go the route of a wise counsel or philosopher king. No, but I'm sure there is some sort of independent body that can be put together with groups of experts from a variety of fields who can oversee this process independently and competently. Thanks for the comment, Cometh. I hope that addressed it adequately. And that brings us to the end of our questions. But before we go, I do want to take a moment to talk about emails and, of course, go over the two best arguments in regards to our question last episode about the European Union. I just wanted to say, if your email or comment didn't get read in this episode, don't fret. It will probably get read in the next episode. I give precedence to people who have written in earlier over people who have written in later. Meaning that I want to answer the older emails first, because I think it's unfair to keep those people who have asked a question waiting any longer than they should. So, I got a ton of amazing emails and questions for this episode, and it's just sad that I don't get to finish all of them in one go. Now, on to our EU arguments. And for these, I'm not going to editorialize them or anything like that. I'm going to let them stand on their own. What I will say, though, is that in the responses I did receive, the EU skeptics were significantly outnumbered. Probably by a ratio of 70 to 30%. Meaning, EU skeptics out there, you gotta do more to push your message out into the public consciousness. I will start with the pro-EU side first. The best argument I received came from a gentleman by the name of Sam Houghton, who actually writes a blog about this very issue. And I will include a link to his blog in the show description on his site. Sam writes, For me, the first major argument is the one you put forward yourself this week, and I've heard it from other Europhiles as well though many from older generations who emotionally understand this better, that Europe was for countries and millennia a continent of warfare and blood. And in the space of 70 years, we have managed to construct a union that relies on solidarity and cooperation in the name of European values, which of course, like in all societies, are debatable and mainly peace. Considering there has not been a major war in Europe since World War II, it's worth saying that the peace argument is certainly legitimate. Secondly, whilst not seeming clear, the EU does protect the rights of workers. Through several laws on social justice, it also works to raise the standard of living in all nations of the Union. Not only through the passive effects of increased trade, cross-border cooperation, investment and the movement of economic resources and people, but also through EU funds to raise standards of living in specific regions, government investment that is targeted at regions from the north of England to southern Italy, eastern Germany, and etc., etc. Finally, I just want to emphasize that point of cooperation, the ability of a worker in Poland who can't find a job to move to Britain find work, and support his children is a fantastic achievement, and something that I think fosters what has latently existed for a long time, a European identity. Of course, there are splits in who Europeans think they are, their cultures, their norms, their ways of life. But from the medieval period, to the Renaissance, to the Reformation, to the Enlightenment, as well as the several conflicts that have drawn in powers from across Europe show that there are trends that run across our continent and we must fight together to preserve them, just as we did to win them. To go to more practical levels, the threats of unbridled financial capitalism, transnational corporations, climate change, and borderless terrorism are threats which cannot be effectively confronted by the small European nation-state. We benefit from and are far stronger working together. This idea goes back to the founding of the Union in 1951. Ultimately, the EU represents, for me, a thousand years of European achievement in science, philosophy, economics, and politics. It is the birthplace of our modern civilization and the mother of liberal democracy. These are things which Europeans have worked together to achieve and must work together to advance now. Of course, the Union isn't perfect. There is too strong an emphasis on neoliberal economics and not on social justice and protections yet. The government needs to be reformed to create a true transnational democracy. The states need an equal say over legislation, and the elected chamber needs to be strengthened to have the role that is required in EU governance. That doesn't mean federalism, where the states are created by the Union that the nations call themselves. There must, of course, be differences. States cannot be entirely subordinate to the European level. They cannot be stripped of their powers to enforce laws, implement laws, or protect the rights and freedoms that they want for themselves. However, to think that the Europeans can or should try to achieve the best separated is wrong and I will fight against that argument for as long as I can. I want to see Europe's voice heard loudly in the modern world, and to me, this means a European Union. Regards, Sam Houghton. Thanks, Sam. That was great. Let's move on to our next argument, the anti-EU argument. This comes from Jake. Jake's argument has three points. One. I would like to open my discourse with an attack on the very component of the European Union that extends beyond practical analysis. The motive, per se, as you mentioned briefly in this week's episode, the elevation of the European Union as a geopolitical development designed to stem the wave of aggression and nationalistic behavior. Both of these claims I find to be of an ironic nature as the very content of this argument assumes that history is static. Regional conflict has never been a trend restricted to the European continent, but if we are to consider that the Europeans are somehow special in their contempt for each other, we would be wise to consider that much of the ideological component of such militant behavior has been dispelled over the last 70 years, barring a resurgence of very much due to the EU itself. No, the European Union has not been a contributive fact to the reversal in that sentiment. And, if anything, the EU has become the primary intensifier of European international contempt from nation to nation. It is more likely a factor of humanistic perception and a civilized hatred for the ultranationalistic that has quelled the anger between competing national claims, not the intervention of a supranational organization that has only managed to make itself the object of disgust for all European citizens. I think it takes a real utopian idealist to truly come to a conclusion like the European Union has been the primary or any defender against continental conflict. Number two. And should we be so surprised that such hatred has been aroused against the EU? Certainly not. If the EU's primary objective was to stem the tide of war, a point which is now invalidated, shall we consider the alternatives? There is first the economic factor, a brilliant deception which falsely convinced the UK in 1974 and other like-minded countries of impending disaster, should they refuse to join, or impending prosperity, should they join. With external organizations such as the IMF, WTO, etc. providing comparable continental free trade agreements as the EU, we cannot rule the EU as some sort of be-all and end-all organization of wealth. Indeed, the economic prosperity incurred by the EU has been negligible and, as we now fully know well, has exasperated the European crisis through pre-recession free credit and post-recession austerity. The fact is that the unfulfilled fiscal policy of the EU has slurred growth and even incurred recessions, e.g. France not to mention the authoritative German efforts on the Greek's democratic nation. It is plainly obvious that many of the composite nations are but satellites to Germany, if Greece has taught us anything, or other involved nations. If my government will allow a brief moment of defamation, the EU seems to me, and pardon the demagoguery, nothing more than our little dream market. By R, he means American, by the way. Perhaps an unfulfilled fiscal policy is preferable to the unfulfilled, monetary-excluded fiscal approach of the EU. This takes me to my next point. The EU is not a democratic state. The EU Parliament is a facade of the unelected commission. But even if it was elected, or the EU legislature was democratically empowered, the links between EU and national power remain ambiguous. In the UK alone, a nation without full membership, the EU government constitutes well over a majority, possibly a supermajority, of applicable legislation. This power has been ripped from the parliament and installed into the hands of a questionable cabal of unelected Brussels officials. Take this not as charged rhetoric. Even the elected EU Parliament has become the burgeoning center of power, despite electoral turnout well below a majority. This is an amazing usurpation of the ancient parliamentary power, with distant officials contributing 60 to 70% of the laws applying to composite members. Number three, it would be foolish, furthermore, to neglect that the EU's laws are some of the silliest in the world and are renowned for their stupidity. This is the consequence of running an immensely powerful supernation without regional jurisdiction. EU fishing laws and their effects come to mind, but also some absurd grocery market regulations. The EU literally seems to be playing a game of preferential policies, regulating certain things for the benefit of contributive regions to the unfortunate detriment of others. This is not equality before the law. This is a perversion of the law. A half-elected state with preferential legislation operating as a quasi-German empire, with limiting economic benefits, preventing national customs, and all the while claiming the responsibility of democracy and absolute imperative of free trade. Did I also mention they have the stupidest judicial system in the world? Anyway, that brings us to the end of Jake's arguments. I thought both these guys did a great job, and I'm not going to declare a winner, because I want you guys to make up your own minds for who you thought had a better argument. And with that, we are at the end of Naples Ultra Episode 3. A special thanks to everybody who wrote in and gave their feedback and contributed to this segment. We won't be here next week, but I'll see you all two weeks from now. And once again, you guys all have a fantastic holiday break. Let me take you out by reading the responses to last week's question. This week's question pertains to a theme in the show itself. The question is, do you think an enlightened dictator is the best form of government? This is Spencer Downing, signing off for now, reminding you to stay thinking, my friends. Liam writes, I believe that in our modern times, at least in the Western world, with social media, YouTube, and other independent outlets, it would be impossible to have a complete monopoly over the media. I also feel that if someone tried to gain a monopoly, it would only encourage more independent outlets to begin cropping up and speak out against the monopoly in question. Dieter writes, Media conglomerates are a serious threat to free speech. As their power grows, the big conglomerates could become the only voice left being heard. Which, in effect, terminates free speech. To a lesser extent, it could be used to heavily influence public opinion and thus the result of elections. Michael Simmons brings up a point which is not in a direct response to the question we asked, but definitely fits into that realm. He writes... It seems to me that if a person or group has a huge amount of power, like money or political influence, then certain responses would cross into the realm of actions and could be justified against their speech, especially if it is proven that their speech is causing some real harm beyond simply offending someone. That's all, folks. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.